Well, hey, good morning, everyone. My name is Josh Miller, and I'm one of the pastors here at Center Church. And if you're a guest with us, I'm gonna give you a special shout out. I'm super glad that you're here. Do me a favor, go below this live stream, click the connect button so that we can follow up with you later this week. Well, it is hard to believe, but it has been 19 weeks since we were able to gather together to worship. And for the sake of reference, that is longer than an NFL season. It's longer than a college semester. And it's even longer than Christmas time, which now stretches from mid-August until January. Okay, 19 weeks is a very long time. But, but seriously, it's been a long season and it's been a hard season, right? It's been a hard season personally. I've talked to many of you who are struggling with man, isolation and loneliness, and it hasn't been an ideal season theologically either. The scriptures are clear that the church is supposed to gather together. It is an essential part of who we are and what we do. So this time has not been ideal for us as a church. We've been making the best of it. We've been using technology and we're grateful for that, but it has not been ideal. For all of those reasons and more, I'm excited today to announce that as a church, we are ready to take our first step towards gathering together again in person, okay? Our first step in that process, and that is going to be an event that we're calling a night of worship and vision, okay? A night of worship and vision, and I want to give you the details right here on the front end, okay? It's going to be happening on Sunday, August 2nd, two weeks from now, okay? Sunday, August 2nd, two weeks from now. It's going to be hosted at Cross Life Community Church on Rio Road. We're going to have two services, two services, one at 4 p.m. and one at 5.30 p.m. And we're going to spend time worshiping together. And I'm gonna share with you some vision and some of our plans for the fall. Now, as I see it, as I thought about it, there are probably three groups of people in our church, three groups uh, that, that will respond in slightly different ways to that announcement, okay? The first group is, is probably fired up, okay? You're a person who is so excited to get back together, man, you are really fired up and excited to hear that we're doing that. Um, the second group of you is, is probably what I'd say maybe bummed out because you are a part of an at-risk population. And really, no matter what we do until there's some sort of vaccine or real improvement in the coronavirus scene, you're not going to be able to be with us. And that really grieves me, and I know that it grieves you as well. One of the things that we've done is we've, we've made a significant investment in our technology so that we will be able to live stream our services for you. So even on August 2nd, we will have our vision and worship night live stream so that you can connect with us digitally. And the third group of people I would say maybe is concerned, okay? You aren't part of an at-risk at population, but still the idea of gathering together with, with a group of people in a building gives you pause, okay? It gives you pause. And I want you to know that we're really intentionally and prayerfully and trying to sensitively think for every one of those groups. And I want to briefly explain how we are working hard to ensure that our gathering together is safe, okay? So let me walk you through some of what we're doing. First, we're following every single requirement and every single best practice that has been established by the CDC and the Virginia Department of Health for the gathering of religious services. This includes, we will be wearing masks indoors. So everybody will have masks on. The only exceptions as prescribed by the CDC uh, is someone that's speaking from stage. So when I'm preaching, I won't have a mask on. Uh, when Chris is leading worship, he won't have a mask on, but that's it. Everybody else will have masks on. Second, we're going to be practicing social distancing in the building and in the way that we set up the auditorium. We're going to be disinfecting the uh, key services before and after each service. We're going to establish a one-way entry and a one-way exit so that we control the flow of traffic. We're going to be propping open exterior 
and interior doors to reduce the amount of things that anyone is touching. And we're gonna be providing touchless hand sanitizing stations throughout the facility, okay? So we are doing a lot. We're following all that's been prescribed. We're even going above and beyond that to ensure that it is safe for us to gather together. And just so you know, for the sake of reference, there are a number of churches here in Charlottesville who have already been gathered back together and it's gone really well. There's been no challenges, no issues, no outbreaks, anything like that. And so we have a lot of models to follow and we have a lot of data that makes us say, man, we really believe that this is safe to do so. So I want to speak just real, real um, briefly here to that concerned group of people, okay? So, you know, you're, you're not in an at-risk population, but it does give you pause coming together um, um, with people. Man, I would love for you to join us. I would really love for you to join us on August 2nd. And to help you feel as comfortable as possible doing that, we're actually going to be practicing what we're calling early seating, early seating, Okay. So if, if you'll simply email elders at centerseville.com, elders at centerseville.com, and put in the subject line, early seating, we will respond to you with a, with a scheduled time slot where you can arrive to the facility. Someone with a mask will meet you outside from a distance, and we will walk you in by yourself into the building, and we're actually going to place you um, as close to the exit door as possible. So we have a, a designated section of seats where you can come in on your own, you can be seated, you can participate in the service, and then you can can go right out the door. And the reason that we're doing that is that we understand that there, there's a lot to be thinking about in this season, and we want to do anything we can to, to make you feel comfortable in joining us. So we would, we would love for you to join us. If you're sort of on the fence about it, I would really, really love to see you. Um, I would really love for you to be there. I think it would, it'll be really encouraging for you. I think uh, it'll be really good for your faith. And I, I really do believe it's safe. We're working really hard on that. But all that being said, um, and I understand if you're just not ready, and I and Justin, we respect that. We love you, and we are looking forward to walking with you in this season as we move towards gathering together, okay? One last thing about uh, the vision night on August 2nd is that at that particular service, we will not be offering childcare, okay? We will not be offering childcare at that particular service. So there's kind of two options. Parents, you're welcome to bring your kids with you into the service. That would be fine. We'll seat you as a household and you'll still have all the proper social distancing. Or parents, you could switch off. So one of you could come to the 4 p.m. while the other stays with the kids and then you could swap, okay? So those are two ideas. Justin is going to share more information about RCPs and things like that at the end of the service during announcements, but I wanted to put it on your radar. And I just wanted to invite you to pray with me now for that night, that it would be a really encouraging and powerful night in the life of our church. Okay. So if you would, wherever you are, if you just bow your heads and pray with me, Father, we love worshiping together as your church. We know that that is your design. And so Lord, I pray for August 2nd, that as we gather together, that you would bless our worship, that you would be glorified in it. And you would just give us a real spirit of encouragement and a real spirit of fellowship in that time. Lord, I pray for all the people in our church and all the different places that we're coming from, that we would all press into you. Father, be gracious and kind to one another and that you would help us to walk humbly and you would help us to walk in unity as we enter into this season. Lord, we love you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are three weeks into a new sermon series where we are looking at the life of Abraham. And I've told you before that we're looking at Abraham's life for really two reasons. Number one, he's one of the most famous people in world history. I mean, not only Christianity, but Judaism and Islam all trace their heritage to Abraham. But for Christians specifically, Abraham is called the father of our faith. He's called the father of our faith. So as you understand Abraham's relationship with God, it will better help you understand your own relationship with God. And in today's passage, we're going to learn about Abraham's ambition in life. 
Abraham's ambition in life. And the word ambition simply means a strong desire to do or achieve something. A strong desire to do or achieve something. And we all have ambition. It is a universal human impulse. Your ambition might be to get a promotion or it might be to graduate top of your class, to get married or to lose 15 pounds or to overcome some pattern of sin in your life. No matter who you are, no matter where you're coming from spiritually, we all have ambition for something. We all do. And here's what our passage today teaches us. You ready? You determine your ambition and then your ambition determines your life. You determine your ambition and then your ambition determines your life. We are gonna see that so clearly in our story because our story is gonna feature two men with very different ambitions, Abram and his nephew Lot. One had what I'll call worldly ambition and the other is what I'll refer to as holy ambition. And you're gonna see that their lives went in very different directions based off of their ambitions. And so as we're reading through this passage and as we're understanding these two men, here's the question that I'd encourage you to ask yourself. Which man am I more like? Which man am I more like? Am I more like Abram or am I more like Lot? So if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to meet me in Genesis chapter 13, starting in verse one. That is where we're gonna be today. And as you're turning there, let me give you just a little bit of context so you know what's going on in the story. Abram or Abraham, it's the same guy, was called by God to leave the city of Ur, which was in Southern Iraq, and move to a place called Canaan, which is sort of roughly equivalent to modern day Israel. Ur was a very civilized place, but Canaan was much more primitive and tribal. Ur was well watered. It was built on the Euphrates River. Canaan was much more arid and it was prone to drought and famine. Well, at the beginning of chapter 12, Abraham took a huge step of faith. He left where he was living and he journeyed all the way to Canaan. But then in the middle of chapter 12, a severe famine struck the land, which was not a rare thing to happen in the land of Canaan. And rather than living by faith, Abram left the promised land and went down to Egypt. Well, while in Egypt, Abram lived like an Egyptian to the point that he even gave his wife to Pharaoh to become one of Pharaoh's wives. In response, Pharaoh gave Abram many sheep, many oxen, all kinds of gold and riches as a bride price. But God afflicted Pharaoh's household because of Sarah and Pharaoh gave Sarah back to Abraham and told him to get out. He said, get thee out of Egypt. I don't want you around here anymore. And that brings us up to verse one of chapter 13. It says this, so Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him into the Negev. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. So Abram goes right back to where he started in chapter 12, a place called the Negev, which was a border region. It was basically the furthest south you could be in the promised land, the closest that you could be to Egypt. And we're told a bit about Abram's financial situation in this verse. You see, he was rich, but he wasn't just rich. He was very rich. That's what the text says. He was very rich in three things, livestock, silver, and gold. So what that means is he had plenty of cash on hand. He had a lot of buying power. That's what silver and gold was, but he also had a very strong savings account. You see, back then there weren't 401k plans, there were herds. And the idea was that the more livestock you had, they multiplied and grew over time. So in that day to have a herd was like to have a portfolio today. So not only did Abraham have a lot of cash in the 
the bank, but he also had a really diversified, strong portfolio. We know he was already wealthy when he went down to Egypt because only very wealthy people could mingle with the princes of Pharaoh. And he just rolls right up in there and starts mingling with the princes of Pharaoh and he and Pharaoh sees his wife, right? Only very, very wealthy people could do that. So, that we, so we know before he went to Egypt, he was extremely wealthy. I mean, he probably had plenty of stored resources to get through any sort of famine. So the question is, if Abram was already wealthy, why did he go down to Egypt? Because he wanted to protect and grow his wealth. Because he wanted to protect and grow his wealth. He didn't want his herds to shrink for lack of grazing lands and for lack of sufficient water. You see, Abram had a strong desire and ambition to grow his wealth. That's why he went to Egypt. His greatest ambition and wealth was financial prosperity. And while in Egypt, Abram achieved his ambition. He was accepted into the high-class society and his wealth grew. He gained more and more livestock, more and more gold and silver. But Abram's spiritual life suffered as a result. If you look closely, you'll notice that Abram never built an altar to the Lord in Egypt. He did that constantly when he was in the promised land, but when he gets to Egypt, he stops. You'll also notice that the Lord never speaks to Abram while he was in Egypt. The Lord spoke to Abram a lot when he was in the promised land, but never spoke to him in Egypt. You see, to mingle with Egyptian society and to be able to to buy and sell in the marketplaces, Abram would have had to acknowledge the Egyptian gods. And he most likely would have had to acknowledge that Pharaoh himself was divine. You see, in Egypt, Abram's finances prospered, but his spiritual life suffered. His portfolio went up and his spiritual life went down. And as that was happening, God intervened. What's amazing is Abraham didn't change things. He seemed to be pretty happy. It was God who intervened. And what God did was he, he dried up Abraham's golden goose. He afflicted Pharaoh's house. He helped Pharaoh understand that Sarah was the reason he was being afflicted. And he said, get out of here, get out of Egypt. You are no longer permitted to dwell in my land. You are no longer in my good graces. Get thee out of Egypt. God intervened and God dried up the golden goose. So Abram found himself walking with his tail between his legs with a very, very struggling marriage back to the place where he never should have left. And I wonder if you can relate with Abram. Right? Maybe you've spent years pursuing financial goals while neglecting your spiritual life. But then something happened that woke you up. Maybe you just found yourself consumed with anxiety. Maybe you found yourself depressed or maybe you lost your job. Maybe the doctor told you, hey, you have such high blood pressure that if you keep living this way, you are gonna die young. Something happened that was like a bucket of cold water and it woke you up. It could be God. It could be God inviting you to get out of Egypt and to come back to him, just like he did to Abram. And if that's the case, if if you can resonate with that, then pay careful attention to what Abram did next because it's what you need to do as well. Look at verse three. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first And there, Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So when Abram got back to the promised land, he didn't stop in the Negev, but he continued to travel north all the way back to Bethel, where he had first built an altar and called upon the name of the Lord. Now, why did Abram go through all that extra travel? Because he was repenting. Because he was repenting. 
When you get kicked out of Egypt, you have two options. You can get angry and you can try to find a new version of Egypt or you can repent. You can own your sin and you can seek God's mercy and restoration. And that is what Abram did. He's getting back on track. He's retracing his steps to the spot where he was last obeyed. And friends, that's what the word repent means. It simply means to turn around or to go back. To turn around or to go back. That's what Abraham did. And friends, that's probably what some of us need to do this morning. We need to go back. You need to go back to giving generously to God's church. You need to go back to prioritizing sexual purity in your relationships. You need to go back to living in intentional community. Maybe you need to go back to some spiritual discipline in your life. You used to read your Bible. You used to keep a journal. You used to go on prayer walks, but then you stopped. Okay, go back. Go back, start again. Martin Luther, the famous reformer, once said that the entire Christian life is about going back, starting again. Maybe you're like Abram, and this morning what you need to do is you need to go back. And it's important to note that Abram didn't just repent of what he did, Abram repented of what he desired, Abram didn't just repent of what he did. Abram repented of what he desired. He didn't just say, God, I'm sorry for going to Egypt. He said, God, I'm sorry I loved money more than you. You see, Abram repented of his ambition. Abram didn't just repent of what he did. Abraham repented of what he desired. And we're going to see that clearly by comparing Abram with his nephew Lot over the next several verses. Look at verse five with me. And Lot who went with Abram also had flocks and herds and tents so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were also dwelling in the land. So who's Lot? Well, Lot was Abram's nephew. And when you see Lot, just think Lot of trouble, okay? That's who Lot is. One pastor said that Lot was the kind of guy who woke up on third base and thought that he'd hit a triple, okay? Have you ever met one of those people, right? They just kind of, they have a lot in life and they, they don't realize that it's been given to them by other people and they're sort of entitled. That was Lot. Lot had flocks, herds, and tents because Uncle Abe was rich. He was the original rich uncle, okay? He had all that he had because of his Uncle Abe. Lot went to church. He went to the altar to offer sacrifices because Uncle Abe went to church. Everything that Lot had was because of Abraham. But at this point in the story, conflict starts to develop between uncle and nephew. You see, the land couldn't support all of the possessions that they had acquired. Livestock need grass to eat. They need, they need water to drink, and there simply wasn't enough of it. On top of that, the Canaanites and Perizzites also lived in that region, and so Abram and Lot were sort of hemmed in. There just wasn't enough space for both of them to live. If Abram and Lot both stayed in the promised land, it would cap their financial growth. You understand that? If they both stayed in the promised land, it was going to cap their financial growth. Their herds would not multiply as much. They would not continue to grow in prosperity. Their portfolio would not continue to mature. It would plateau. And it's at this point that you start to see the different ambitions that Abram and Lot had in life. Look at verse eight with me. Then Abram said to Lot, 
Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right hand. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Now, what Abram did sounds at first like common sense to us, but it really wasn't. This was a patriarchal society where age and seniority were everything. Abram was the uncle. He was the oldest and he was the most wealthy. He had all the authority. But Abram didn't talk about his rights. He didn't say, this is what I deserve. This is what I'm entitled to. I'm gonna get mine. I've earned it. Instead, he was incredibly generous and sacrificial. Why? Why was he so countercultural? Why did he act so differently than everyone else would have acted? Because his ambition had changed. Because his ambition had changed. He hadn't just repented of what he did. He had repented of what he desired. He'd said, God, I'm sorry that I desired you more. I'm sorry that I desired wealth more than you. And he, he models this. He shows us this. Because think about it. Abram had three relationships. He had a relationship with God, with Lot, and with his money. And he could only keep two of those three. He and Lot could both together leave the promised land and find a land where they could both prosper, kind of like they did in Egypt. If Abram did that, he would keep his relationship with Lot and with his money, but not with God. Or Abraham could have asserted his authority over Lot. He could have said, Lot, I'm the oldest. I'm taking the land. You go find something else. And if he, if he did that, he would have preserved his relationship with God and with his money, but not with Lot. Or Abraham could say, Lot, you pick where you want to go and I'll take the leftovers. You pick the better land and I will make the rest work. And if he did that, he would preserve his relationship with God and with Lot, but not with his money. Option A is what Abram did in chapter 12. Option B is what everyone else in Abram's culture would have done, but Abram chose option C. Why? Because he had developed holy ambition. He had developed holy desires in life, which leads us to our first point, if you were a note taker. Number one, holy ambition prioritizes God and others over self. Holy ambition prioritizes God and others over self. The order of priorities in your life make a huge difference in the long run, don't they? Think about your eating habits. For example, I like to eat healthy, but I also love dessert. And unfortunately, those, things, those two things don't mix. So every night when I'm contemplating if I want to eat a bowl of ice cream before bed, I have warring desires within me, right? And the decisions that I make, the priorities that I choose are going to have an impact on my life in the long run. Well, what this passage shows us is that holy ambition prioritizes God and others over self. Abram was willing to leave, was not willing to leave the promised land or hurt his relationship with Lot. So what did he do? He put himself last. He absorbed the financial cost. That is what holy ambition does. So let me ask you, what do your priorities say about your ambition? What do your priorities say about your ambition? Does your calendar indicate that you are living with holy ambition? How about your budget? It's worth noting that there are actually two ways to get this out of order. It's two ways to miss living with holy ambition. The most obvious way is to just put yourself first, right? Just kind of like to be a me monster, just put yourself first all the time. But I think most of us understand that narcissism and conceit is undesirable, right? So I don't think most of us are drawn to that. 
But, but there's a more subtle way that I see this happen in my own life and in the life of others. And it's when we put others before God. It's when we put others before God. In my life, that happens through people pleasing. I'm tempted to lie. I'm tempted to uh, fudge the truth, to, to man, mix what I'm saying to people because I want to keep them happy. Right? In those moments, I'm tempted to put other people above my relationship with God. That's not holy ambition. I see this happen a lot in the lives of parents when they become kid-centric, kid-centric. Look, kids are a blessing from the Lord. I have three kids and I love them to death. I love that we have a lot of kids at Center Church. But as a parent, if everything revolves around your kids, then you're putting your kids above God. If you can't belong to a missional community or if you can't come to a Sunday service because your kids have a different activity every night of the week, you have misplaced your priorities. Now, I don't think, I don't think most people do this maliciously. Parents I know who operate this way sacrifice a lot of time and money for their kids. But here's what we have to realize. The best thing that we can give our kids, the very best thing that we can give our kids is a picture of holy ambition in life. The very best thing we can give our kids is a picture of holy ambition in our life because our kids are smart. Our kids very quickly understand what matters most to mom and dad. And if we are modeling for them that God is the most important thing in our lives, that he is our greatest treasure, that he is our greatest delight, that he is worthy of all of our sacrifice and all of our praise, that he's worthy of orienting your entire life around, they're gonna know. But if we act like God is just kind of a supplement to our lives, he's just something we throw on when we can, they're gonna know that too. Friends, the best thing that we can give our kids is a picture of holy ambition in life. Abram shows us first that holy ambition prioritizes God and others over self. Let's keep reading. Look back at verse 10 with me. It says this, and Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus, they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So in where Abram and Lot were living is really interesting. It actually had this spectacular panoramic view of the surrounding country. You see, between Bethel and Ai, which is where they were, the elevation drops 3,000 feet over 20 miles. 3,000 feet over 20 miles. So this would be like being on the highest mountain range in a region and just being able to look out miles and miles of the countryside. So when it says that Lot lifted up his eyes, it literally means he used his vantage point to look around and consider the country, to consider his prospects, as it were. And when Lot saw the Jordan Valley, when he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered and that it had cities which were more like his upbringing in Ur, he decided to move there. He decided to move there. Look, Lot was a young, wealthy guy, and he wanted to live in the middle of the action. He figured it was better for business and it would be more exciting to live down there than to live out in the hill country with old Uncle Abe and Aunt Sarah, right? He was a young, wealthy guy, and he wanted to be near the action. Now, the text says that the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And Lot knew that. It was impossible for him not to know that in the culture of that day. 
So why did he pitch his tent so close to Sodom? Why did he pitch his tent so close to a city that was known to be wicked and full of great sinners? Because unlike Abram, Lot's greatest desire in life, his ambition was not holiness, it was worldliness. Which leads us to the second thing that we learn from this text. Worldly ambition neglects holiness. Worldly ambition neglects holiness. Lot didn't ask the question, where will my family thrive spiritually? Instead, he asked, where can I make the most money and have the most fun? And friends, the consequences were tragic. He underestimated the impact that this decision would have on his family. His wife died in Sodom. His daughters ended up being perverted by the city. And his family legacy becomes really strange and twisted, as we're going to see. And it all started with this decision. It all started with his worldly ambition that prioritized wealth and pleasure over holiness. Now, it's easy to be hard on Lot, but honestly, we're tempted to do the same thing. Instead of asking, where will I thrive spiritually or where is there a healthy church that I can plug in with? We often ask, where's the best weather and the biggest salary? I'll move there. Or we say, man, I just wanna have the college experience or I just wanna have the young professional experience, but I'll settle down when I get older. And that was Lot in a nutshell. That's exactly what he said. I'm sure he didn't anticipate settling down in Sodom, but he did. And it had massive consequences for his life and his legacy. Here's what I've found. In every season of life, there is a temptation to move to Sodom. In every season of life, there's a temptation to move to Sodom. It doesn't stop when you graduate college. It doesn't stop when you get married. It doesn't stop when you have kids. It doesn't stop when you retire. In every single season of life, you will be tempted to seek wealth and pleasure and comfort in something or someone other than God. There is always a temptation to neglect holiness for the sake of instant gratification, always. There is never a season of life that there's not a Sodom down there in the Jordan Valley that's looking pretty enticing. And here's the dangerous thing. Each time we move to Sodom, it makes it harder to move back. Each time we go down in the valley, each time we choose for ourselves which way we're gonna go, it gets harder and harder to get back. It's like you're in quicksand. Old Testament scholar Joyce Baldwin pointed this out about Lot. She said, first, Lot lived near Sodom. But the next time he's mentioned in chapter 14, do you know where he's living? In Sodom. I started, I'm just gonna live near, I'll just, I'll put my toe in. I'll just kind of, I'll just kind of go to a couple things. And then what happened? He got sucked in. She says this, Lot didn't reckon with the powerful downward pull of evil all around him. The powerful downward pull of evil all around him. So, and let me ask you, have you moved your tent next to Sodom? Have you moved your tent next to Sodom? And tent represents your relationships. It represents your free time. It represents where you invest your feelings and your emotions and your heart. What captures your affections? Have you moved your tent next to Sodom? It is an important question because it has broad ranging implications for your life and your legacy. Remember, you determine your ambition and then your ambition determines your life. So let's keep reading and see how this story ends. Verse 14, then the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land 
that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth or the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So after Lot packed up and moved, we have Abram musing upon his nephew's opportunism as opposed to his own isolated way of life in the hills. And it's in that moment that the Lord spoke to Abram once again. And if you look carefully at this passage, you'll see that there is a contrast happening between Abram and Lot. Lot lifted up his eyes, but the Lord lifted up Abram's eyes. Lot chose for himself, but Abram waited on the provision of the Lord. And God's provision, friends, was so much greater than anything that Lot could choose for himself. From this high vantage point, God said, Abram, look north, south, east, and west. I'm going to give you this land, and I'm going to give you so many descendants that you won't be able to count them. Then God said, go walk through the land, see it for yourself, feel the turf under your feet and feel the wind in your face. It is going to be yours. Now, like so many promises of God that we read in the scriptures, this promise was not easy to believe. In a lot of ways, this promise seemed silly. Abram was an old man with no children and this land was inhabited by vicious tribes. It didn't seem possible. From a human perspective, it seemed completely impossible. But friends, that's what faith is about. Faith is about taking God at his word and taking your next step. It's about taking God at his word and taking your next step. And in Abram's case, that was a literal next step. He was called to go walk around the land that God was going to give him. And friends, here is the amazing, remarkable thing. As, as improbable as this promise sounds, it occurred historically, objectively, it happened. God did it. God did exactly what he said he would do. He multiplied Abram's descendants and the book of Joshua is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abram. After Abram's descendants had taken possession of the land, I love this verse from Joshua chapter 21, verse 45. It says this, not one word, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. All came to pass. It didn't come to pass in Abram's lifetime. It didn't come to pass in the way that Abram probably thought it would. There are a lot of twists and turns around uh, along the way, but friend, all came to pass. Not a single word of all the good promises that the Lord made to Abram failed. That is what faith is about. It's not about believing because it seems probable. It's about believing because the God that you serve is able to do the impossible. It's because the God of all creation is your God. It's because the God who hung the stars in the sky is the one holding your life together. Abram couldn't do this on his own, but it was an easy thing for the Lord to do. Abram's life and legacy ended up being massively significant. But unfortunately, Lot's life became increasingly perverted and his legacy is bizarre. Why? Because by faith, Abram lived with holy ambition, whereas Lot did not. Friends, you determine your ambition and then your ambition determines your life. 
So what is your ambition? What is your greatest desire in life? Is it holy or is it worldly? Are you more like Abram or are you more like Lot? That is the question that this text presents us. But before we close, I want to point out a tension in this story, okay? A tension in this story, and it's this. Abram is undeserving of the promise. Abram is totally undeserving of the promise. In chapter 12, Abram did exactly what Lot did. Lot learned that behavior from Uncle Abe in chapter 12. The very livestock that Abram possessed was evidence of Abram's faithlessness and failure. And just so you know, Abram is going to screw up again. The Abram of chapter 12 is going to come back very soon. Abram has not arrived. And yet, God renewed his promise to Abram with even greater detail. Has God no standards? Does God not care about holiness? Does not God not care about what Abram did to Sarah? Does God just simply wink at sin? How could God do this? Because there's a third man, there's a third man whose ambition is pointed to in this text. You see, centuries later, the real son of Abram, Jesus Christ, was also taken up on a high mountain. But it wasn't by God. Jesus was taken up on a high mountain by Satan. In Matthew chapter 4, Satan took Jesus up to a high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, all of these I will give to you if you will simply bow down and worship me. Satan said, Jesus, I will give you all of the land. I will give you all of the kingdoms and all of the glory and you don't have to suffer and you don't have to be humiliated and you don't have to go to a cross. All you have to do is worship me. And Jesus looked at Satan and he said, no, no. He said, I did not come to the world to gain everything. It already belongs to me. I came to the world to lose everything so that my people could have it. That was his great desire. That was Jesus's holy ambition to lose everything for you and for me. You see, God could renew his promise to Abram because one day Jesus Christ, the truer and better Abram, would die for Abram's sins. And you know what? Romans chapter four tells us that through repentance and faith, you can become a child of Abram and you can be brought into that very same promise. Even though you have acted like Lot, you can be treated like Abram because of the incredible work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. You determine your ambition and then your ambition determines your life. Let the work of Jesus on your behalf motivate you to choose holy ambition like he did. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are gracious, that even though I have failed and we have failed so many times, like Abram, that you continue to be gracious to us, that you continue to offer us hope, you continue to call us back. You say, get thee out of Egypt and come back to me. Lord Jesus, thank you that based off of your work, any person who repents and places their trust in you can be forgiven and can be cleansed of their sin and can be brought into the family of God through faith. 
Lord, I pray for all of us this morning that are listening. God, I just pray that you would, you would work in us and show us ways that we are living according to the world, according to worldly ambition. And would you change us? And would you show us that the better way, the truer way, the way that we are created for is to live with holy ambition, where we pursue you above all else, where we love our neighbors and we put ourselves third. God, would you give us grace to do it in response to what Jesus has done for us, for all these things in his name, amen.